Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the winter season, 2002. <laughs> um, uh, I think we're going to have a very interesting uh, e evening this evening. Uh, our lecturer is Professor Keith Haywood, who will be well known to some of you at least. Um, he uh, knows a great deal about the structure of industry and the economics and that sort of thing. Previously in academia um, and uh, in recent years he's been at SBAC in a, a key position there. Uh, his title is Head of Economic and Political Affairs and um, at the moment he's currently on secondment, if that's the right word. He's certainly working within the DTI building for most of his time um, on the Aerospace Innovation and Growth Enabling Team. And uh, that also is uh, a key role uh, of real significance uh, regarding the future. Now, this lecture um, arose because Keith and I happened to be here at a reception after some other lecture about a year ago and it was just after BAE had announced the termination of the RJX program and we were both standing there eating and drinking and bewailing to each other this uh, state of affairs uh, it marked the end of uh, UK, uh, UK role as being major integrators and uh, project authorities on civil aircraft as a whole, the end of that story. And um, we talked about various aspects of this and um, I decided to invite Keith to come and talk to us about the whole scene on civil aircraft since the war. He has written a number of books on the industry and its structure, and uh, they're to be found in the library here. And uh, I'm sure we shall have uh, a very interesting time uh, following what he has to say, and in our normal style here for these evenings, discussing things with him afterwards. So without further ado, Keith, you're invited to speak. Thank you, Thank you Frank. It's, well, it's a great honour to um, stand here and address a, a collection of friends and colleagues who I think as collective experience of the, the aerospace industry um, would be, I said, measured in, did I say it, uh, several hundred years? <laughs> several hundred? <laughs> Thousands, thousands, thousands. I was, I was trying to be polite. I also, I, in a sense, have to apologise to a degree in that I'm sort of masquerading as a historian because, in a way, um, many of you, I suspect, have spent more time working through and digging into yellowing papers of company histories, technical histories, and some of you, I suspect, also have looked into the, the more dubious record at Kew, 
where the government interface to our industry is buried, sometimes mouldering, certainly perhaps with many interesting stories to tell. So in that sense, what I'm about to do is, is more or less regurgitate something I wrote close to 20 years ago. I looked at the, the yellowing pages of this little book and I, I realized that actually it was 20 years almost to the month that I delivered the damn thing to the publisher. It was, in a sense, a, a transforming event for myself in that um, the, on the basis of this book, I spent a better part of a, a lifetime at academia studying the development, as Frank suggested, of the, the world aerospace structures and the world aerospace industry. But I still had a, a soft spot for, if you like, the historical development and the historical progression of the industry. And it's remarkable how people do still have a thirst for that. Even you know, people who actually are new to the business or as in the case of my current preoccupation, the, the future look at UK aerospace over the next 20 years, um, burying into the past to show where some of the legacies have come from, where some of the misconceptions and certainly some of the stronger perceptions from our collective enemy, I'm not here referring to the French aerospace industry, I, I mean the gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen who live at Great George Street, um, the UK Treasury, And the story I'm to tell tonight, uh, and I, 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 I'm again a second, second false colour, you've got the rebirth of the aerospace industry. I'm going to take you to the Vale of Tears in the early 70s, perhaps angling for, a, for an invitation to, to bring the story up to date from the, the, up from the rebirth perspective. Because in, in, in some respects, it's, it, it is, if not a tragic tale, although there were some tragedies along the way, it is certainly a sad tale in some respects of lost opportunities, missed opportunities, false dawns. But of course we all know in the end the story comes out reasonably happy. Uh, and again, coincidentally, I have a, uh, a little publication here that entitled Airbus, a success story for industry, government and the UK economy. It's Airbus's uh, attempt to, to show cause for further investment in their programs. And of course it is a success story. What, 2,000 plus wing sets delivered? We have, eight, we have up to 50%, 60%, I think it's two, someone said, do I hear more? Certainly. Uh, <laughs> it, it's, a it's a large amount of metal by anybody's business. And in terms of, of value, of course, it, 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 it makes the, even, in, even in, 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 real, I say in real terms, certainly in some respects, the money that has been sunk into civil air frames since the Second World War look uh, at last looking rather, rather better balance of, uh, 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 of trade, if you like, or better balance for the, for the UK economy. We also know that roles, and though again I'm deliberately going to avoid talking about the aero engine sector, although when we get into the 1960s it's impossible, of course, to, to, to avoid the um, hinting of the, of the Rolls-Royce problems. Rolls-Royce does stand, of course, as one of the, again, raging successes of, of UK aerospace. It is a systems integrator. It is a, has independent control over its intellectual property. It's a world player. And despite certain problems, which I will refer to at the end of my lecture today, we have a commercial avionics sector that actually bids into to world programs and has had remarkable success. And, and again, we're not talking about the military side here at all. So we know we've got a happy ending, really. 
<laughs> so, let, so let's, but let's, let's wallow, um, as you all know, let's, let's wallow in and, and tell sad stories of the death of aeroplanes. Nineteen forty-five, in a sense, was the, is the start point here, because the legacy of the war, in a sense, helped to shape much of the immediate decade or so. There was a clear recognition from nineteen forty-three onwards that something had to be done about the future of UK, the UK aircraft industry, something which had grown as a monster, monstrous proportions during World War Two to feed the the demands of the RAF. Um, we'd gone up, of course, uh, allowing for wartime production to an employment levels of about 2 million people. And bearing in mind that in 1936, prior to, uh, re- prior to rearmament and the, and the opening up of the shadow factories, we had an industry of less than 30,000. It, it went from cottage or garage industry to real industry in the better part of five or six years. So... It, we had, in a sense, by force of war, got ourselves a world, if not class, certainly a world-scale industry. And with only the Americans likely to be contesting the marketplace post-war, it was evident that the government did see in aviation the prospects for export-led recovery. But what to do? What to buy? What to, what to sell? What to build? There was, there was nothing there. We, after all, as, as everybody, I think everybody knows the story of the self-denying ordinance in 1941, that the UK would not produce transport aircraft during the duration of the war. We would rely upon American equipment. Now, whilst we were building Lancasters and Spitfires and all the rest of it, the Americans, of course, will, were building DC-3s, C-47s, they were also building the, the further generation of compound-powered long-haul, or for that time long-haul, um, piston-engined aeroplanes. They were coming out of the, the Second World War with a formidable quality, as well as cost-conscious, commercial aerospace industry, or commercial aircraft industry. So what were we going to do? After all, it should also be said, the government in its wisdom, felt there would be no war for 10 years. So the commitment to defence products would be, to say the least, limited and speculative. There would indeed be a whole raft of research programmes, many in support of the, the emerging nuclear, nuclear weapons programme, the, what would become the V-bombers. But there would not be metal in the factories. So perforce, the government in its wisdom, felt that commercial aviation would be an important part of the post-war recovery. But how? Now, again, I'm not going to go into spend a great detail. I think I, many of you have probably heard lectures already on the, the Brabazon programme, the, the, the discussion and analysis put together by, under the chairmanship of Lord Tara of Brabazon to investigate the future of the UK aerospace industry. And from that came a whole raft of programmes plus uh, uh, some interim types, bomber conversions, some, some, some rapid developments, one of which was, of course, the relatively successful Viking aeroplane, that would try to fill those factories. And it was a bold program. You, if you look at them, you see the failures. The, the, Brab- the eponymous Brabazon, of course, was a complete misread of the, of the future transatlantic carrying, carrying requirement. But, of course, it contained within it three Jewels, the Vickers Viscount, de Havilland Comet, and of course the de Havilland Dove too. At three levels of, if you like, three levels of the marketplace. 
We haven't got time to go into the detail. It wasn't quite as direct that we got the comet. The Viscount itself was looked upon by BAE as uh, something of an mm, unknown quantity. But we got those programs, and in that sense, it was, in retrospect, a reasonable success by the criteria set for the day. It was to exploit, in, a, in, in part, the technical leads of the jet engine. And, of course, the, the Viscount and the Comet were at the heart of that, of that bold, bold step. But it was a government-led program. This was wartime direction into civil era of aircraft. The Brabazon program was run by the then Ministry of Supply. It was funded largely by the Ministry of Supply, though I think some, public, some private capital came into the, the more successful products. I think de Havilland um, sunk their own money into, 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 into development of the Comet. But the government as an, supported as an entity these programs, for better or for worse. They also, using legislation, required BOAC and BEA as the nationalised airlines to buy the national product. Much gritting and grinding of teeth, of course, from BEA or BOAC, who in many instances had to buy, had to accept inadequate aeroplanes. The preference would have been to have bought completely from the United States. Now, by 1948, some of the problems with this program were beginning to, to show themselves, particularly, and here we do have a tragedy, a literary tragedy, and that was the crash of the, the Tudor. And there was a whole series of examinations of the Tudor um, by Hanbury Williams, who recommended an end to programmatic approaches to civil aircraft. They thought, this was absurd. How can governments, even governments supported by nationalised airlines, actually predict commercial requirements, determine commercial programs. So the, there was already, by 1948-49, an acceptance that directed programmatic intervention was going to have a, a limited lifetime. And Henry Williams, in, 48, 40, uh, in, in 1948, recommended that there should be a more commercial orientation to the sponsorship of civil aircraft in the United Kingdom. And that led indirectly to the 1948-49 Civil Aviation Acts, which incidentally is still the legal underpinning of repayable launch, in, launch investment to the day, to, 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 to today. And you don't expect to see in its um, extensive formulae, programs. It just simply allows the Minister of State, wherever he or she happens to sit in Whitehall, the ability to support... UK commercial aircraft development. It's just permissive legislation. Nowhere will you find in statute a budget for commercial aerospace or a set of formal programmes under which UK aircraft will be supported. It is simply permissive. But the real shift, in a sense, from programmatic intervention would come in 1951... Uh, and here, it's, in a sense, it's only twice, I think, in, in the post-war period does, does a change of government actually make a signal difference to the way in which commercial aircraft are funded, commercial aircraft are supported in the United Kingdom. 1951, the advent of the Conservative government, and I think the advent in 1975, 74, 75, of the Labour government, but that's not really the subject of my lecture. But 51 
was in a sense a precursor of a Thatcherite commitment to liberal economics. We were pulling out that their government, was, their policy was to pull out of industrial support, denationalize steel and all the rest of it. And looking at commercial aerospace, they, or commercial aircraft, I can't say, I should be talking about aircraft, but it's air, I, I, let, me, let me call it aerospace. They looked at the failures, and I'll, I'll show a picture. We haven't, we haven't done any pictures. They looked at things like this, the Brabazon, of course, for, for those of you uh, who aren't familiar with it. I'm only showing pictures so you don't have, you have something, something, something other than me to look at. They looked at things like this and said, that's a failure. We're not going to get, we can't, can't go down that route. But there were obvious emerging successes. And this was, in a sense, the, 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 the logic they would go down. Remember, Comet, though this is a Comet 4, as many of you will recognize, Comet was appearing to offer a massive breakthrough in long -haul market, the long-haul market. Certainly a, a revolutionary design that was scaring the United States into considering direct support for its own civil aerospace industry. And this was beyond the, the notion, beyond the, the wheeze that Boeing would come up with, and that was converting a tanker aircraft into an airliner prototype. They were buying it, or at least Pan Am had put orders down for it. So it was looking very good. We had the Viscount, successful short-haul aeroplane, breaking into the American market about that time, I believe, with, 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 with orders from, from National. And we, of course, had hopes of the big turboprops, the follow-on to, follow to Viscount, the Vanguard, and the long-haul Britannia. Although this was, as many of you know, had a problematic development program, there were still hopes that having got over these difficulties, that it was going to, it was going to command a significant lead in, in long-haul aviation. So you had Vickers making money, you had de Havilland probably about to make money, the Korean War rearmament program was putting money into the aviation industry through the defense sector. It looked as though the industry could be self-sustaining. In part also because the, the development costs for airliners also looked bearable. Uh, just remember that for the moment too. These, by modern standards, were not big costly developments. Although I by the standards of the time, something like the Comet did make a few eyes water. So what the Conservative government in 51 announced was that they would no longer countenance, except in exceptional circumstances, the direct support for UK commercial aerospace product. They would, however, argue clearly that companies could launch private ventures, and there was an expectation that the nationalized airlines would continue to buy the flag. Now, like, again, many bold attempts, many bold efforts to wean aircraft, civil aerospace, off government support in one form or another, this, if not doomed from the beginning, was certainly put under pressure by events. Undoubtedly, the, the most signal and most tragic event was the comet problem, the comet failures, the comet crashes, and the withdrawal from service of comet ones, and the crisis at de Havilland, which w attracted 
some degree of bailout. Money was put into the factory. The REF was instructed to order off the drawing board Comet 2s. And indeed, uh, this is where I think looking into the record of Comet would be an interesting one. There was some indication that the government vetoed attempts to move forward rapidly to Comet 3 and 4 in order that they would to have them could fulfill the order for the RAF Transport Command. But whatever, an exceptional circumstance, the bailout of de Havilland for national, in part for national security reasons, shades of Rolls-Royce some 20 years, some, yes, 20 years later. An attempt to, as it were, recreate or re-establish a lead in long-haul jets failed when the RAF Transport Command bailed out of the V1000 four-engine jet, a derivative of the Valiant V-bomber. We also begun to see the failure of the large turboprops. The Britannia and then later the Vanguard did not make that commercial headway. Again, we needn't get into the detail of that in part because of technical problems, in part because the advent of the, the short medium-haul jet a few years later stripped the market of, of interest in uh, the turboprop. Defence procurement went into a spin post-Korea. And indeed, 1957, of course, many of you will recall the Sandys White Paper, which triggered a, a, a considerable furore in the industry as prospects for manned, manned combat aircraft looked increasingly dim and uncertain. It was also the case that those development costs, which had been contained and containable in the early 50s, were beginning to creep up inexorably. And I, I'll come a bit onto that in a minute, because it's very germane to the, to the launch of the VC-10 in a second or two that there were limits to what could be sustained by the UK operating alone and off its own domestic market. And the private venture period was not helped by the insidious effects of having to come off that domestic market. Because the nationalised airlines were driving, their, driving a hard bargain for buying the flag, often reluctantly, often biting their tongues, not biting their tongues, actually protesting madly to all who, all who would listen that they were being forced to buy this British rubbish. Much better to buy the stuff that was coming from Seattle. The quid pro quo for buying the flag, for accepting the launch costs of UK aircraft, for proving the aeroplane flight development, if you like, in-service flight development, which were not insubstantial costs, was that the nationalised airline, BEA and BOAC, would have a very decisive role in shaping the specification. I, I've caught, I think it was referred to then as tailoring. It certainly is a, a phrase that I, I, I use to describe this period. And the Results, I think, were catastrophic. In the initial period, it looked okay. It looked as though this approach could bring the aircraft, civil aircraft industry back from the, back from the brink. 
The launch of the, the, the VC-10 and its later larger equivalent, the Super VC-10, somewhat a little later on, was seen initially as a vindication of the policy. This, as you know, was, a, a, again, a further development by the Vickers company from, its, from, its, from again, coming out of its jet bomber experience, looking at the effect, the, what a design effect of the V-1000. This aeroplane was tailored for what were known then colloquially as BOEC's imperial routes. The hot and high specification of flying people down to South Africa, crudely put, coming off short, rather short runways at high altitude. And for the day, the launch of VC-10, and as I say, say later Super VC-10, was enormous. 35 aircraft worth in, those, in prices then £68 million, or using today's money, £947 million, just short of a billion quid. An enormous order for the day. We'll come back to the, 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 the VC-10 in a moment or two. But it looked again as though you know, you could, we could pull this off. The second of the, of the pairing of the era of tailored aircraft was the Trident. The H121, I think it was, uh, it initially appeared as. Now, the Trident was, a, 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 in a sense, an even more interesting aeroplane in that the government used or tried to use the Trident program to push forward the early stages of post-1957 rationalization. Again, we, I don't want to go into, a, uh, into another uh, siding by, by looking at TSR-2, but in a sense, this, is a, this, was one, this was the civil equivalent of the TSR-2, that the government, Ministry of Defense, Ministry of Supply, used the TSR-2 contract to encourage companies to pool their resources. Well, the MOS tried to use the BEA's contract for a short-haul jet in the same way. In this instance, de Havilland put up a proposal matched by Hawker Siddeley and Bristol. The MOS preferred the Hawker Siddeley-Bristol design, if only because it was putting Hawker Siddeley and Bristol together. De Havilland had the inestimable support of George Millwood, then, I suppose, managing director, chairman, no, chairman of BEA. I get confused with some of the titles of, of, of nationalized chairman. He and his team thought the Trident was the design they wanted and stuck to it. Grudgingly, the government accepted a de Havilland, or sort of mini consortia that had been assembled by de Havilland, including the small company, uh, I think it was Hunting that was initially involved in this particular particular um, program. Hunting would later become part of BAC, but that doesn't matter. It mattered not. There was an enormous political dispute. At one stage, the ministers of supply and the ministers of civil aviation were in public dispute over the purchase of the DH-121 Trident. In the event... De Havilland, gets, De Havilland and BEA get their way and they launch the Trident. But I think this is, in a sense, one of the great lost opportunities. De Havilland were in thrall, if that's not too strong a word, to BEA. They were heavily dependent upon the launch order from, from the domestic carrier, 
heavily dependent upon how BEA viewed the marketplace. Now, the guys at de Havilland, and, and here, by the way, I, I, I'm, I must pay tribute to, to, to Derek Brown. As many of you may know Derek as, uh, as, as a chief designer, at, uh, senior designer at de Havilland, later at Hawker Siddeley, then later at, at Airbus, who took me through this story because he had lived it. And that the original 121 design was large, heavyweight aeroplane with lots of stretchability. In short, it was what the Boeing 737 would become. But in the late 50s, BEA got cold feet about their market forecasts and turned to de Havilland and said, sorry chaps, we want a smaller aeroplane with a derated power plant. As Derek tells it, the de, ha the de Havilland design team were aghast, were appalled, so uh, for that matter were the Rolls people, who, who were also looking at the market forecast and came up with rather different conclusions to BEA. But there was very little alternative. BEA commanded the order, BEA told the, uh, told the manufacturer what they wanted. And what they got was the Trident one. Very little stretch, very much smaller than the original design. Beautiful in the short term for BEA, lousy for the market penetration that the, 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 the 737, the 727, sorry, the 727 would eventually obtain. So in a sense, that's, I think, the, the, the essence of the, 19, the 1950s. Attempts to get the commercial aerospace industry in this country on its, on, on, its own, on its own two legs, failed in part because the market went in a different direction, failed in part because costs began to rise dramatically, failed in part because the, of the quid pro quo of depending so heavily upon just two airlines' view of the marketplace. There is, of course, worse to come. Go back to our, super, our, our VC-10. It was the, the largest single, then, the largest single commercial aerospace order ever made in the United Kingdom. But Vickers began to face significant financial crises in the late 50s, in part because of the failure of Vanguard, in part because of a general downturn in the military business that was coming off the back of, at the, back of, of the Sandys White Paper, and partly because of the sheer difficulty of getting the, the Super VC-10 in on cost. An appeal to government had the result of foisting changes on BOAC, additional orders, reconfiguration of orders, attempts in this case to create a Super VC-10 which was rather larger, and perhaps more capable of taking the Americans on on, on standard markets. Incidentally, um, the requirement for those sh short, hot, high altitude runways was a little bit buggered by the fact that the Americans put in large runways as part of the post-war post foreign aid program, which just happened to suit DC-8s and 707s. So whilst a VC-10, as many of you, I, 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 never flew, I never flew in the airplane. It's a beautiful airplane and lots of passenger appeal. Again, it, it, it was competing on the thin end of the market when it was taking on the 707 and the DC-8. The result was, again, that, uh, 
this time, a crisis for, for BOEC. In the early 60s, BOEC declared a loss in modern money of just, just over a half a billion pounds. It led to the resignation of the chairman and, uh, uh, and managing director. Again, amidst enormous public, um, public row, as both of them blamed the government, then in the figure of Duncan Sands again, this time he was Minister of Aviation as opposed to Minister of Defence, for putting pressure on them to buy VC-10s to keep Vickers afloat. I'm going down this route, in a sense, to, 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 to close off the, the, the tailoring nationalised airline launch pad. Because one of the immediate consequences of the BOAC financial disaster was the installation of a very much tougher man as chairman, a guy called Guthrie. He immediately said, as, as a price for recovery, he would have cancelled the whole of the VC-10 order. Just like that and gone for 707s. The government said, you can't do that. That would cause, that would cause Vickers to collapse just as we were rationalising the industry. And a compromise was achieved. VC-10s were reduced in order, and more 707s were purchased. But significantly, the nationalised airline BOAC, and this also extended to BEA, were allowed full commercial autonomy to buy aircraft suitable to, for their purpose. And if, ha but, but, and this is an important but, if they were required by the government to buy British for whatever reason, they would be compensated. If purchases were directed, they would receive government compensation. Shift of, a very important shift of principle. Now, that takes our story up to the mid-60s. We have to, we have to sh come back a little bit. One of the reasons why the government put pressure on Smallpiece and Slattery to buy and to bail out, VC, bail out Vickers was, of course, that the government was then trying to push and drive home its rationalization program. That they were be trying to cajole those tough hero designers, hero owners, to combine and to pool their efforts. And during the early 60s, of course, the government was encouraging the formation of Hawker Siddeley Aviation, or HSA, and the British Aircraft Corporation, BAC. Poor old Handley Page went, went by the by. As part of the bribe... Sorry, inducement. Encouragement. Um, military orders were allocated. TSR2 went to BAC. Several, several military orders went to Hawker Siddeley. And Duncan Sands said, we can have launch aid. The government will take a share in, the non in supporting the non-recurring costs of commercial aircraft. Oh, and by the way, we won't give it to companies that don't play ball. Hence, Handley Page getting the sharp end of the government stick. Although I think the Herald did receive some launch aid. It was, very, it was far too late to save the Handley Page company. 
Now, launch aid, and I'll, I, it's, it's now politically incorrect to talk about launch aid, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. We talk about repayable launch investment. But sorry, this was launch aid. You'll see why towards the end of my lecture, why it has to be seen in this light. <clears throat> the government would undertake to support part of the non-recurring costs of commercial aerospace development. Up to 50% was regarded as the sort of norm that could be expected by a company. It would be based upon a commercial evaluation of the, of the, projects, the project's viability. And the government, of course, would share in the returns from the program. Initially, simply to re repay the investment, and then indefinitely to get, a, to get a share of any royalties subsequently to that repayment. Now, I, I haven't really got time to go into the, 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 the highways and byways of launch aid. Suffice it to say that this was greeted with considerable, considerable, uh, considerable happiness from the industry. It also even got the backing of the Treasury, because it looked as though the UK government would commit would its aid and assistance to the aerospace sector. Oh dear, false dawn, false assumption. Given the ambiguities of launch aid would, would be one of the contributing causes to the subsequent collapse of Rolls-Royce. But as they say, that is definitely another story. In the event, Trident, the BAC 111, Super VC 10 were all beneficiaries of the launch aid program. But in a way, we're already entering a new era. By the mid-1960s, as in many other aspects of aerospace, the UK was looking to enter the age of international collaboration. Now here we do have to go back a step or two. And you know what's coming now, I think, ladies and gentlemen. I'll not offend people by here by saying that this is a, a, a missed opportunity. But not because, well, no. I'll not try and I, I always believe a commercial aircraft fails in its function if it doesn't sell its product. But um, this was one of the this was one of the great exceptions of the 1950s. Remember, I said that the private venture period would have exceptions. Well, the the, the bailout of De Havilland was one of those exceptions. The support for supersonic transport was clearly another. Again, I, I, I think we've, we're all too familiar with this story, but I, I will simply state that this was unequivocally a government-led, government-motivated, government-directed program. And it all came out of RAE Farnborough's interest in supersonics, a belief by the Ministry of Supply, God forbid, that the future lay in supersonic transport, the curve of speed and all of that stuff. Now, what was industry thinking about this? Well, I don't think industry thought much about this at all until government came along with a pot of gold and offered them development. I think Sir George Edwards, uh, who, of course, later ran the company that built Concorde, he, he said, well, we'd much rather have the money building a decent subsonic, subsonic follow-up to the 111. But if the government came along with a pot of gold, we were not going to turn this down. It would have gone somewhere else. So I think, in some respects, this, is a, this was a, a, 
much more than an exception to provide private venture. It was completely reversed. This was almost, in a sense, the, paradoxically, the reversion to a Brabazon-style program. And indeed, if you, look, if you go through the history of this period, um, it is described, it is, this is not a launch aid program. This is a government-contracted program run under, virtually under MOD rules. But, of course, this is a highly politicized program from the, from, from the outset. The UK clearly sees that the, the £100 million needed to develop this is out of, out of the question as a UK program. Yes, I, you, I did say £100 million, ladies and gentlemen. <coughs> it was seen then as being twice as much as the, as, the, as, the, as the VC10 to develop. Therefore, we had to find partners. We know we tried initially with the Americans, and then, my God, we were forced to go with the French. And, of course, once we got it into a European collaboration, European collaboration itself becomes a means to an end. Sorry, an end in itself. The Concorde certainly becomes a, a, a vehicle of very high politics as the Conservative government of the early 60s tried to persuade General de Gaulle that we are good Europeans by putting money into a supersonic transport. But whatever the, the consequences of, of, of the 1962 agreement, it sets a scene for the, what you might call the final act of my lecture, the era of collaborative development. Now, this is confirmed fully with the new Labour government in 1964 and the Plowden Report of 1965. Again, how many of you have recently read the Plowden Report? Very interesting. I, I actually had to because I wanted to look up some, some details. But fundamentally, it said that the, the UK would no longer launch a major program alone, either civil or military, though there would be one or two later, as, as you know. On the civil side, this, of course, led directly to commitment to a new collaborative medium-haul aeroplane. And again, no prizes. Let's guess what's coming next. Now, this is the one that flew. Uh, there's an obvious statement for you. The one that was put together in the mid-60s did not fly. The original Airbus was a much more troubled beast. But of course, from the British perspective, you had two centers of design excellence, BAC, Hawker Sidley. And here, and by the way, this was supposed to be an era of competition between two airframe companies. Nonsense. The government was directing orders, directing, insofar as it could, development contracts to ensure that both BAC and Hawker Sidley were balanced. And you can see what was coming. BAC had got the Concorde. They'd also got the 111 that they were building with launch investment, launch aid, but more from their own money. A lucky inheritance from hunting, if I remember rightly. Hawker Sidley had the trident, looking rather sad. 
They also had, and this is, I'm not to be disparaged here, they did have the technology too. I, I, I think that there's no doubting that the, the Trident wing was particularly advanced, and picking up with work that was being done at the Royal, Air, Royal Aeronautical Establishment Farmer during the period, I think technically it was the better, I mean, I'm not an engineer, technically it was the better solution to anything that was, that was emerging out of the other, other set of partners. But it is evident, the government said quite clearly, that Hawker Siddeley are our preferred partner. Sorry, BAC, in spite of all your ability to work with sort of and all the rest of it, on your bike, focus on, tri focus on Concorde, get on with it. In 1967, the UK government, therefore, agreed with the French and the Germans to develop what was then def described, defined as the A300 Airbus aeroplane. I think Airbus with capital A didn't come along until a bit later on. We were putting about 37% of a 130 million pound program at the time. In today's money, that translates to 1.4 billion. So you can do the sums yourself that we were taking just under 40% of 1.4 billion projected costs. It would have a nice new Rolls-Royce engine, the RB207, for which we were going to pay 75% of the costs because the, the French didn't really want this one. And there was a commitment on behalf of the three nationalized airlines to buy the product, Lufthansa, Air France, and our friends, BEA. Well, there, you could, I think anybody who knows this period knows that there were problems from the start. BEA under... Sir George Millwood had taken the Guthrie line. Not unless you pay us, Gov. Because we, in fact, prefer a nice new development that BAC are coming up with, which is development of the 111, the BAC 211. Well, in this instance, the government invoked its right to direct purchase. BEA were told they could not support the 211. BAC were refused launch aid, launch investment. And as an interim aeroplane, BEA were redirected with compensation to buy the Trident 3B. Not a happy time. And it would set the scene, if you like, for the, you know, the, the final crisis of the 1960s. BEA, miserable about having aeroplanes foisted upon it again. BAC, lurking in the wings, sniping away at Hawker Siddeley and its European colleagues. And surprise, surprise, a European program running into problems. Okay, no time here to, to, to debate how and why the A300 ran into difficulties. But by 1968, those 130 million launch costs had risen to 215 million, which is just over two and a, two and a quarter billion in today's money. The thing was getting out of control. It was, it was exploding in size. It was, oh, as many of you know, the early days of Airbus were dreadful. On the back of that, rolls lose interest. Now, again, no time to go into all the details here, 
But Rolls, of course, had been playing its own game through the 60s, looking for the elusive order from the United States. Rolls had committed itself to the American market, had seen in Airbus just a very second best to keep its triple spool engine designs warm. And in 68, Rolls win that infamous order with Lockheed to put engines onto the L-1011. So Rolls no longer give a toss about the Airbus. Government, in a sense, gets no pressure from Rolls to support the Airbus. Airbus isn't delivering the goods. The Concorde costs, remember, are also exploding out of control. We had gone up to, in those prices, in, in 1960s prices, half a billion quids worth of, uh, of commitment, looking at a billion pounds worth of commitment for full development. Little cause, therefore, for the UK government to be happy about supporting civil airframes. I, I went for a job at BA British Aircraft Corporation in 1968, 1969 rather. I was offered a job as a analyst. I turned them down. There. I could have been John Weston. Oh, well. And they went for this, in a sense, the, you could say the, the British Airbus, rather large, slightly smaller than the, what would become the bloated A300, Significantly, it was offering RB211 engines, or at least derivatives thereof. Nice bit of commonality with the, with the 1011 program. BEA loved it. And in March 1969, or 1968, they put in a bid for a launch aid. You could say at this point, the government was looking for an excuse to resolve some of its problems. And paradoxically, the solution to Airbus provided the solution also to the government's dilemma. Henri Ziegler, then appointed, just recently appointed to, to, to run Sudavassion, shook the design team up at, a, at Airbus. And they came up with a much reduced aeroplane, the A300B the original Airbus. Got the costs under control, got the, the market segments better. But of course, they also offered engine choice. That The RB211, yes, the RB211 might be one of the engines selected, but equally, equally valuable, equally likely, the CFM6. At which point, Tony Benn, as then Minister of Technology said, sorry, you've ripped up the treaty, ripped up the agreement. It's a Rolls-engined aeroplane or it's nothing. And in the event, it was nothing. March 1969, UK government bails out of the Airbus program. There is a strong indication that BAC would get the 30 million, 70 million pounds, 735 million at today's prices, launch aid request for the 311, particularly as BEA was supporting the deal. Now, this is the veil of tears time, ladies and gentlemen. 
Because we know Hawker Siddeley were appalled by this, very bitter. Uh, I know, again, one of the joys of writing this book was, 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 was talking, interviewing Sir Arnold Hall, then chairman of Hawker Siddeley. And there is no doubt what he, he felt this decision very, very personally. We know the, the consequences. By losing official contact with the Airbus program, the UK equipment industry loses substantial work share. The French get a leg up into the aero engine business by doing a joint venture CFS or a development barrier, a develop, helping General Electric do a development version of the CF6. Mind you, much good does them in the long term, but that's, that's a, definitely another story. The decision on 311 is deferred until after the upcoming general election. And here, in a sense, we, we, I come to, my, come to my final point. Because, in a sense, it's, it's the conservatives that do the dirty, do the deed. The new government under Edward Heath is given another opportunity to re-enter Airbus. He's seen, uh, rightly, as a, as a great European. We have the 311 launch, invest, launch aid proposal on the table. But I think the government just looks at the overhang. It sees for the first time the real costs of Concorde. It is beginning to get a hint of what would become the death of Rolls-Royce, or the near death of, well, at least the death of old Rolls-Royce. Just beginning to get a hint of the cold winds that were sweeping out of that L-1011 contract. And they decline both the Airbus invitation and the BAC-311 launch aid bid. And then six months later, we're into the Rolls-Royce bankruptcy crisis. And that, in a sense, is the, the, the veil of tears. UK civil aerospace in extremis. A record that has to be read. Public support for aircraft between this, between 45 and 74, in today's money, 4.67 billion. Okay, 60% of that might have been in Con might have been Concord. Receipts from all of that, 54 million. If you add the engines, by the way, we get 9.4 billion outturn against 889 million ret returns. Now, I talked. I was talking to my boss, David Marshall, who's as many of you know, a, a great advocate of the industry, he says, so what? What does this mean? I said, well, you could almost say, only? <laughs> 9.4. You know, we, we, we did get the, we did get the, the expertise. We, we built, got ourselves behind the, the classic barriers to entry. But of course, the, the Treasury then didn't see that way. And there are many officials who see the, see the record and don't see that today as being money well spent. 
And it is certainly money that, in a sense, is being set against the revenues of the successful Rolls-Royce family and the successful Airbus wing sets. But it wasn't, you, you can still think we could have done a lot better. Okay, yes, with all the hindsight, we could have done better with the Trident. I think probably VC-10 was, 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 was beyond saving in some respect. But Trident was an awful, awful failure commercially. Not because of the design team or whatever, but simply because of the circumstances and the absence of some way of ameliorating the need to rely upon BEA was not available. We didn't make the best use of Concorde for all the money that was thrown, thrown away on it. Because again, we, we, unlike the French, couldn't leverage the electronics, the avionics that came out of that program into the Airbus, which is exactly what the French did. But it was a, a, a veil of tears. But what surprises me, and by the way, the last veil of tears, in a sense, was this poor old program also nearly got the chop during this period. Well, there are some shareholders of BA Systems that would think that. What a shame it didn't. What's surprising, actually, is how quickly the recovery came. Not necessarily economic recovery, but the recovery in political confidence. Because within four years, certainly the, the, the return of the new of the Labour government in 74, 75, we were beginning to contemplate a new era of investment in civil programs. Now, the, the, the line to the 2003 or 3000 Airbus wing set would still be difficult and torturous. The line to the, the Trent family powering generations of A380s would also be even more torturous. Remember, Rawls nearly went bankrupt again in the late 70s early 80s. It is still remarkable that government was convinced of the continuing need to support UK commercial aerospace. You know, there are outsiders that say, you are a bloody lucky industry. But bear in mind, of course, how the car industry was going belly up, the domestic car industry was going belly up during this period, for much the same level of expenditure, probably more in real terms, in terms of level of expenditure. And they haven't generated the 3,000th equivalent of Wingset or RB211 <coughs> Trent family of product. I'll stop there, because I think I have definitely said enough. Keith, come and sit down, and we'll 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 carry on from there. Uh, I think uh, all of us have found that a most interesting and uh, provocative uh, uh, history. Um, uh, for me, it reminded me of things that I'd almost forgotten. Didn't want you to remember, probably. And, uh, and it quite, and it shook me in various ways. Um, I think there are all sorts of things to debate coming from it. A very important, obvious one, of course, is the, the issue of what are we making, who's it for, 
what are the markets? This is regardless, in a sense, of the sheer technology. Given the technology, what are we going to do with it? What are, what are the products going to be? And that side of it seems to be one where we particularly mucked it up. Um, and by we, I mean the UK with its airlines, its government, its industry itself, the thinking at the top level of the industry, I'm sure was very, very questionable. Um, and uh, that's my own personal observation, but I'm sure there are many more uh, who want to uh, add something or question something from the floor. And I know Graziano does. Yes, uh, Graziano Presti, Aerospace Analyst for PricewaterhouseCoopers. Uh, my question is, uh, given the UK's impeccable pedigree in developing civil jetliners and prop jets, you know, Viscount, 111, Trident, what have you, in the 50s and 60s, <coughs> the fact that now this country has a mere 20 or 20% fifth of the Airbus programs and plays second fiddle to the French and the Germans is certainly not probably a record to crowd, you know, to shout aloud about. Uh, in my view, there were three critical decisions taken in the 67 uh, 70 uh, period, which, in my view, contributed to the UK's um, secondary position in the civil airliner market. First, the decision to give the French uh, leadership on A300, when it was basically a hooker-sibley design. Secondly, the withdrawal from Airbus when, when UK and France were leading, were co-leading with a 40% share each. And finally, um, the refusal to give a loan chain to the BSC 311, which was the, the national alternative. Um, Assuming that you agree or, or maybe disagree with my uh, with my view, why did the UK lose its nerve at the very point where the aerospace, uh, the civil aerospace market, would, was about to explode into a, a huge industry that is today? Thank you very much. Thank you. First, I, I don't want to challenge. I don't want to challenge a, uh, an accountant directly, <laughs> but it is about money. It. Uh, I'd also challenge this view that the market was about to explode. Not historically correct. The market was about to implode. In 1972-73, the oil price increase led to periods of hyperinflation, world economic recession, and a massive downturn in the marketplace. Another veil of tears, this time for... Um, not just the UK or European industry, but also for Boeing, McDonnell Douglas, and Lockheed. So everybody was suffering, and suffering madly. And you could say, if you want a justification with the French and Germans, it was their holding their nerve through the 1970s, which gave us Airbus. Mm. So that, that, no, that, that's not... I'm always, I, always like, I always like having a quick nudge at the French, but this is, this is one where I say they did us proud, they and the Germans. I'd also contest, you know, why only a fifth of Airbus? I'm just looking at the numbers here. 
Um, net, experts, net exports to the United Kingdom of 1 billion per annum of brought and built, built and built wing sets. Now, I went back to an earlier point about this. Prestige and leadership don't necessarily justify cost. They can you can only justify investment in this kind of industry, to my mind, by getting returns on investment. So I would, I would say, in a sense, whilst we lost an opportunity, and I think anybody from Smith's and, and, and later from, from Marconi would probably be groaning at me at this point, saying that, by and large, we did all right in the end, but leadership in the, in the event didn't matter to them too much. Thanks, of course, that inspired bits, inspired bit of contract negotiation by Sir Arnold Hall. Don't forget that the United Kingdom were the only people to make money out of the A300, courtesy of the German taxpayer. Let's hear it for the German taxpayer. I mean, in a way, talking about leadership is a very 1960s, 1970s phenomenon. Because broadly speaking, the development of modern consortia aircraft have been about collective leadership, collective development. Why, to answer your question directly in the end, I think it was about money. The Conservative government came in in 71 and looked at the, 1970 and looked at the bill. Concord, open-ended. 311, who knows how much it would really cost, although they were going to cap it at the cap it at 70%. One of the problems that were emerge, was emerging with, with launch aid and the Rolls experience, that once you were into these programs, once you, as you were committed yourself to an X amount of money, uh, if things went difficult, there would be a, more please, more please, or we go bust. Now, technically, in the event, Rolls, um, the government let Rolls-Royce go bust, but they were already watching uh, and had seen a ratcheting, ratcheting up of the, of the investment under, 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 under the original 1967 launch investment agreement uh, for the RB211. And they could see it happening again with the 311, I think. And that you, you, if you've read the, I, don't, I haven't read the, the public records, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if that was part of the cabinet debate. And you're dealing, and remember, with a government that had come into office by saying, no more lame ducks. I can quote this one because yes. I remember, I remember yes. the election yes. campaign. Yes. Selsden man was not going to, Selsden man was not going to yes. build aeroplanes. And it was Selsden man who gritted his teeth and shed buckets when they were forced to bail out Rolls-Royce. Along with Upper Clyde shipbuilders, if you remember, another 1970s industrial crisis. I don't know whether that answers your question, but... Um, yes, uh, I argue that uh, design leadership brings uh, quite a substantial set of benefits to the country that actually... If you look at Toulouse and the way France, France's industry has developed, good reach has opened a factory there. Mm. Lots of people want to open, uh, you know, they, 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 the multiplier on the supply chain is quite substantial, actually. No one thinks of Airbus or Broughton or, or Filter, do they? They think of Toulouse and, and they go in pilgrimage to Toulouse. Both, you know, even the American suppliers have to do. I think you're right to a degree. Um, in the sense that the, the, but that's about a much more strategic investment in an industry. It wasn't just about Airbus. Um, the French government had already decided with Concorde that Toulouse would become a, a, 
what they described later as a technopole, uh, would be the, a focal point for, for, for French and thereby European commercial aerospace development. Admittedly, the, the fact that we gave them a sort of open runner avionics and much of the uh, much of the much of the cockpit integration was significant. I'll, I'll not deny that. Um, but the commitment at Toulouse was a, a part of a much more strategic vision about the about aerospace in the economy and about the the way in which you could develop uh, a a cluster, to use modern jargon, that would trigger and stimulate a whole region's um, a whole region's technologically driven economy. But it's true, isn't it, that the French started with a technological deficit relative to us. Mm. Earlier on, you know, we had stronger technology post-war. Um, we were pioneers in, in jet propulsion. We had various areas of our industry where we were in significantly in advance of the French. Uh, so we could, if you like, think strategically from a position of confidence and strength, and somehow we didn't. You know, somehow they managed to think their way through things more effectively than we did. And I'm not talking technically now, I'm talking sort of policy, you know, policy towards industry and policy within industry. Well, I think they also had a grip, but they also had a grip on the companies, with the exception of uh, Dassault. You're always going to be, uh, you're also with an exception yes. of Dassault. Yeah. Yes. They had a grip on the industry, which was never the case in the United Kingdom. They had a grip because most of it was publicly owned, that the personnel went in and out of government and industry yes. In, the, yes. in the typical French fashion. Even in Dassault, of course, there would be an in and out of, there would be a, 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 a convergence of, of of the personnel. And it was that ability to direct and to overcome any semblance of, of hero, I call, I call them the, the hero designers, the hero owners, that got their industry, in a sense, strategically inclined. Where we are faffing around, sort of encouraging BAC and Augustin to come together on the back of a, a TSR2 or a bit of a, a, a 121 contract, they were saying, You're building that, you're getting that. We'll build a factory there. We'll buy that. Much more sense of direction with stronger and more coherent levers. Hmm. But if we had had a stronger grip on our industry, hmm. if our government had had a stronger grip on the industry, silly question perhaps, certainly a what-if question, would we have made effective use of it ah. in the way the French did? David Kirkpatrick. Keith, a delightful and interesting lecture. I very much enjoyed it. It reminded me, like Frank, that some things I've always forgotten. But what you were effectively describing was a centrally planned economy within a sector, following the pattern of wartime economy mm. And, and mirroring in some ways the sort of thing that was being done in the Soviet Union. Yeah. At that stage, it was not seen as self-evidently likely to fail. Mm. There were open questions whether capitalism yeah. communism would, would, would triumph. Um, if, if we look at what could have been done, 
impossible to say that if we had followed the policy after World War One and let the market rip, then the British aircraft industry would crash virtually nothing as yeah. it did in that period. Yeah. And would be in an even less aeronautical situation now. The difficulty was that the government found itself unable to run a centrally planned economy, mm. even as efficiently as the French mm. or, or the Actually, you could, you could say, like, the, 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 I say the world aerospace industry is very much like, you know, God always seems to look after drunken men to get them home. Um, some, will, some, some will, however, fall by the wayside. Because it, it's, you, you, you can all, it's always easy to sort of impose patterns on, on that. Um, I would contest this view that we, we flip-flop for one thing. I think there were only two flop. There's only one flip and only one flop. And the first flip was the private venture, you know, pre-Selsden man in 1951, and the recommitment to central planning of the of the industry, which came with the Labour government in 1974-75, and the commitment to nationalise the the airframe industry, uh, which I think was one of the reasons why we actually got back to where we are now. Thank and that is not a party political position, even though I'm a member of the Labour Party. There is no doubt that this is a, a politicised industry. It's, it's, you know, it's, it, this is your first, 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 first observation. Why a political scientist, God forbid, got involved in this stuff? Why economists never make much sense of it? Because it don't work according to models like that that you did have a lovely statement. I, I, I can remember this one. It, I, I picked it up from, from another book I wrote. That the, the then Minister of Supply in 1948 was asked, why don't you nationalize the aerospace industry, the aircraft industry? We don't need to. We have sufficient control over, over it as it is. And the belief was they didn't have to do anything like that because control of contracts through control of development money, they had enough. Now, what happened in a sense is that the the biggest mistake, perhaps, in hindsight, is that the Conservative government in '51 came away from that philosophy because things looked good. Don't forget that. The, the industry was saying, get off our backs, too. You know, buggering around with these silly programs. We can't, we can't make any money. Look, we're going to make money on, 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 on Vicat. We're making money on Vicat. We're going to make money on lots of money on, on, on Comet. We're going to make oodles on Britannia and then Vanguard and all the rest. Oh, it's going to come out of our ear holes. We don't want government involved in this, taking their share. 
So I, I, I think you, you know, we can see this. You know, we can, we can, a bit of re, we're not careful. We'll, re, we'll rewrite history and see, see it as a sort of a deterministic path, when in fact it's just a, a lot of lucky lurches. Our dear friends, the French. And I was talking to Georgia earlier about this. Um, I, I read the French plan in 1976. Their orders of priority: Concorde, Mercure. Anybody yes, remembers the Mercure? Mercure yes, How many? Sold ten. Yeah, what yes, a. Yes. Apparently, it flew, it flew like a fighter jet. Beautiful, but yeah, sold like a brick. Yeah. And Airbus was, you know, a decidedly poor third in their priorities. So don't, you know, don't, um, you know, the people get it wrong. The failures on the American side, you know, Legion, seen eight, eight, Convair 880 and Convair 990, Howard, oh, Howard Hughes' great investment in commercial. The Electra. DC-8 only just made it. So, you know, and, and, and poor, old, poor, old, poor old Trident, I'm sorry, uh, Trijet, L-1011, you know, we are dealing here with, a, with an industry that has a lot of a, a lot of luck attached to it. Now, what I think is underpinning David's comment, though, is that there are t there are the two models of um, what we might call commercial aerospace support, roughly defined as the European style, launch investment, non-recurring costs, um, um, and such like, and the indirect support that the American commercial aerospace industry has gone down. Now, in a, in, a, in a way, that's what I think the conservatives, they didn't plan it that way, but that's what they were trying to look at in 1951-56, to support the technology base, hence the commitment to the supersonic transport. The failing, of course, was to, was to take the logic of the V-1000. Now, uh, this is a, that's, a, that's a lovely what-if, isn't it? Isn't I, it? Yes. I, I'm, yes. sure, I'm sure yes. someone's yes. look at yes. look, at, look yes. at that one. Yes, but, but that would have been could have been, might have been, probably not have been, the, the, the British 707, which after all, remember, came off the KC-135. Yes, indeed. Yes. What about the 111? Did you, with all due respect, yes. perhaps quite rightly for your lecture, didn't get too much of a mention. Yeah. Um, but, but here's an interesting example, where you have a, an aircraft not built to a BA or BOA. Absolutely lovely. I've uh, been picked up, yeah. Terrific. Substantial lack of development by BAC, who never no. re engined it. No. Uh, in, I mean, in today's climate, you look at an aircraft that didn't re engine several Terrific. times in the yeah. development phase. You, you, almost, you, yeah, you could almost say that you rest our case. It was an aircraft. It was an aircraft that was. It was. It could. It was a, a, a good, solid model of launch investment. It, it received a modest. I think about a third of the, 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 the what is now the standard. You could say the, the world, the the, the, w, the World Trade Organization standard allowable um, investment of about a third. Um, it was built to a, to. I think it was. Was it? BUA, wasn't BUA? it? BUA, BUA and yes. said, okay, we'll buy it. Whatever you produce, we'll buy it. It seems right to us, chaps. And it was, it was, it was, a, it was a, a, a fine example of, 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 of hands-off investment. The, 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 the problem was, of course, that to develop the 111 would have got you into the 2... The 211, remember, was the missing link here. And in, in a sense, it was the failure to develop the BAC family 
which in a sense was the was perhaps another crucial turning point. Now, why again we get into sort of complex politics because we the government had committed itself to collaborative development. Um, the, the A300 was going to suck up available resources. It was going to take the it was going to take the defined domestic market in BEA because we were, you know, legally semi legal or would have been legally obliged to have bought the product. And so I think in that in, in that sense, um, the, the 111 died a death at that point. Simply again because BAC could not sustain it on its own the development costs of of running a, of, of running the program. I personally think that the BAC actually should have looked much more at what was being successful rather than actually looked at what they could do. Yeah. Rather than actually talking about, you know, paper planes, they should have actually said the one level is successful. Yeah. If we can seek to develop it a bit quick, quick more quickly and yeah. also more that can yeah. solve problems. I'm sure I'm sure you're absolutely right. I mean, but I I, I come down again to it's it comes it's what if but I think it, the the limiting factor again was capital availability. Um, the the rash because the rationalisation in 61 62 was still partial. It created these two these two odd hybrids, Hawker Siddeley and BAC. Well, and they lost TSR2, as George Edwards said. How are we going to keep Weybridge going? Absolutely. All of the things are going, and, and of course the 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 likely problems of con capacity issues at Concord, although they weren't actually they weren't actually um, investing in Concord. I think, although I think BAC did have to invest a little bit in, in the program. It, it, it was just very, beyond very little. If yeah, anything, okay, right. I, I thought I thought they set their faces against yeah, it from the beginning. Whatever, actually, yeah. and, and roles for that matter. So I think you had a, you had a structural weakness in the UK UK industry. It was mm. perpetuating this. The myth of, well, in this case, competition. But I think the, you know, the, the biggest what if was that no one got to, no one shook the industry out in, in '45. That, that is definitely another story. That yeah, yes, indeed. Well, one of, one point I'd like to just throw in regarding the 111 is, um, notwithstanding all that you've said between the two of you just now, I think a thing which weighed greatly against the 111 in the end was that it was small. You know, they did stretch it. They did have longer fuselage versions. Um, eventually, there was the possibility of re-engining, but there weren't enough of them around to justify it as a business case, I gather. But I think by that time, in fact, well in advance of that time, um, the DC-9 had come along, which was bigger, and then, of course, the, the 737, which was the last of those three uh, twin rear jets, and that, in the end, turned out to be the winner. And uh, I think the Americans seem to have a knack of... When we're in the lead, what they, they see what we're building and then build something bigger, which has more potential for um, better operating costs and growing with the market. So I suggest that the 111 was fairly fundamentally limited, actually. Sure, yes, I mean, that, that's why I said it to but, Well, okay, well, the point would be that on, when American Airlines ordered the 111, they had the option of actually using the SPAE or the JT9D, and BAC presented 
specifications for both. And unfortunately, American Airlines chose the Spain. It's a great pity, I think, personally, that American, didn't, uh, American Airlines didn't choose the JT9D because then BAC would have, would, have, would have had to have developed a version for them. Even though it was a heavier engine, they'd have had out leaning. They'd have had other things. They'd have had to alter the aircraft in some manner. They would have had to develop it with the JT9D. But think then they'd have had the possibility, and that would have been derated to 12,000 from 14,000. Yes, yes. Then they'd have had the engine which was used in the DC-9, which was used in the initial 737. Yes, well. yes, yes, they, they, they not they deny that. over that hurdle, whatever this great, this great holy grail that BAC just couldn't, you know, go beyond the idea of using anything other than a Rolls-Royce Spain. Though George Edwards did once say his, his role in life was to create aircraft to uh, be powered by Rolls-Royce engines. <laughs> <laughs> I read that somewhere, I don't know. Well, of course, oh, the, the availability. What a, what a slander! What a, cal what a what a calumny on a fine on a fine on a fine company. Also bloody lucky. The, 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 another thing in the BAC 111 story to me is that you know the, the Spay engine was there, and the Spay engine was there because of, as Keith said, the Trident story because the Spay was a scale down. Yeah. For the midway. For the midway. The midway. <laughs> and that was much more like the JT-8D. Mm. Off-the-shelf stuff, this, yeah. Yes, terrible tragedy. And any other points? Other people might want to talk. Bye. Any other points from the floor? Yes. Can I refer back to the Airbus scheme? I know Ralph Air who's the senior, who was the senior designer of the and I know him personally, he lives near me, and he said he had to go over as part of the committee negotiating who would do what and to do with the design, and I presume, where the headquarters was located. And he, he said to me that the French were very stubborn. It was always no to British suggestions and that they were very hard negotiators. So perhaps that's why the headquarters of headmasters own influence. I'm not sure what that... Uh... Well, they'd got a national strategy, hadn't they? They, they, they felt confident in being stubborn, if yeah, you like. I, I, I must admit, I don't, I don't know whether at that stage there are any plans to centralise the production of a final assembly of the Airbus aircraft. This is, this is 67. I don't think they got to that point. That would have been an interesting one, because, of course, Concorde had been, was, was built on two centres, Filton and Toulouse. Um, I... I would think it would have been an interesting battle because it would have been crazy to have built Airbuses in three centres. Remember, the Germans would have wanted a, would wanted a share. So there would have been an enormous bun fight over who was going to get final assembly. Because that was in those days, Giorgio was now left, the, the great totem mm. of macho totem of the industry. We got a final assembly. But in, as it turns out, Airbus got a system where it's only about 10% of the value of the, of the final product. Less than that, about 5% of the total value of the plane. Because, they, because they're forced into getting these large integrated sub-assemblies. Because everybody gets a bit better, rather better share of the work that way. The, pardon? 
Oh, it's a sexy bit. Okay, it's lovely. It's fantastic. I'm going to Toulouse next week. I'm going to see the A300. I'm going to see the A380 mock-up and all the rest of it. Oh God, yes. All right. <laughs> Any more? Did well, anyone, yes. Did anyone do market research on the market for Concord? Because my understanding is that the first time it was realised that there were hardly any paying first class passengers going out east was when they started operating it far in Singapore and made the startling discovery that what first class passengers there were hardly any of them actually paid for their seats. Mm. I, I think there's a, a broad... I, <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. But <laughs> in market research and, air, and civil aerospace during the 1950s and 60s, dear God, there's an interesting oxymoron. <laughs> well, I... The broader point about Concord, in a sense, that it, it was a, the government and much of industry, it should be said. I know I, I, I said industry in the sense was reluctant, was reluctance to endorse it, but quite happy to take the money. But I think there was a, a belief that if they could fund it, there would be a market for it, because it was a classic assumption that you, know, you speed sold. You know, it was a, I call it about the, the curve of speed. Uh, and I think we, we, we know in the end why that projection was fallacious, partly due to the, the, the onset of environmental pressures, the sonic boom issue, the, the escalation in fuel costs that, that finally threw a hole into, um, into Concord operation. But of course, the, the, the whole pattern of air travel shifted in, 19, in, in, nine, in the mid-1960s, when we begin to see the emergence of charters, and of course, the wide body changed the terms of trade. Yes. The market, you know, in a sense, market forecasts can only, in a sense, are limited. It's like it. Uh, and there's, a, there's a story running through all the books about this. I've, I've written that you look at market forecasts; they always depend on what you're selling now. You know. It, yeah. <laughs> we all know there's going to be umpteen airplanes flying in 2020, but. Which ones? I, 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 I'm interested. I, one of the things that fascinated me when I was doing this stuff was that the way in which fashion shifted. That who would have who would have thought it that airlines would have bought an aircraft that really made nonsense of their DOCs? It just happened to have a jet en, pair of jet engines slapped on the back of the, the back of a fuselage, Caravelle. I call it the, I think it's called the rush to jets. Now that was, in a sense, the long haul stuff. You could see why. It's bloody hell, directing DOCs were coming down like 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 crazy because when you would put jet engines on a on a long haul aeroplane. But everybody was saying it is mad to think in terms economic madness to think in terms of jet engines on short, medium haul aeroplanes, turbo props, boys and girls, yes. turbo props. Yes. Everybody yes. makes money on turbo props. Caravel comes along and everybody wants to fly on a jet air, a jet airplane because yes. it's smoother, it's yes. quieter, it's nicer, it's more fun, it's sophisticated. You know, it wants propellers for Christ's sake. And it, you know, it, it, and it, I talk about the missed opportunities. Remember the French moaned at us for taking Trident. Yes. It had Rolls engines and it had a de Havilland Comet front end. Remember. Mm. 
Now, there's an opportunity. We could have mm. stuffed the French by taking Caravelle and forcing a, forcing a leadership position on one of their aeroplanes. Mm. A what-if? Mm. A, what if? Yeah. a good what-if? Yes, indeed. Yes. Uh, David? Talking market forecasts, they can't resist sharing the uh, history of a report I read once longer, a long time ago, comparing the prospects of the Britannia, the 707, and the DC-8 across the world. Oh, come on. And that report decided that the Britannia would be most successful, the DC-8 next, and the 707 last. Yeah, terrific. And this was based on the idea that runways would remain the length they were, yeah. and that therefore the 707 would be unable to take off with a reasonable passenger load. Yeah. Of course, it's not terribly expensive to waste more But say, it's, you know, it's, it's, lateral, it's, you know, it's lateral thinking. If you've got, your runways aren't long enough, build, a, build an aeroplane to suit it. Oh, you know, come on, oh, dear God, no. please. Oh, please. <laughs> yes, yes, quite. Any more? Have we come to the end? Yes, indeed. I see, you didn't mention uh, the hovercraft. Oh. In, in all of this. <laughs> well, I, I, I took assumption that I wouldn't do anything that anything that didn't exceed four foot from the ground. I think was my, sort of my, <laughs> my, my, my ruling definition. Not a hovercraft. I got no answer to that. But one of the, one of the, one of the one of those lovely sad stories. I look down the list of projects that were supported by by, by civil programs, and I look I look here at an aeroplane, Rotodyne. Yes. It re that, re that received something in, the re in 1974 prices that received 7.8 million. So that's probably about that's probably about 15, about 20 million quid in today's prices. It would, you know, transform city centre point-to-point operations. But then the sort of sheer, the sheer noise of the damn beast and its DOCs were all over the shop. Lots and lots of good ideas. I mean, I this is where, in a sense, you you. How, just how many lost opportunities have there been? It, I, have you ever read? Because I, I, I used I use it as a, one of my sources here, at least for description, was um, was was Project Cancelled. What was his name? Oh um, yes, Derek yes, Wood. Derek Wood. Derek That's Wood. Right. And yes. everything, everything, every madcap idea that had come out of the British aircraft industry since 1945 was a lost opportunity. Yeah, if yes, only we'd yes, done this. Yes, I mean, SR71, put a rocket engine behind, put two rocket engines behind your behind your yeah. pilot, and you get the most marvellous interceptor known to man. Oh God. No, no. The, 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 there are limits to what you, what anybody's sense of viability would have brought about. I, I, I can't answer the, the, the hovercraft question because it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, multi, it's a you know, strange hybrid. Which maybe one of the reasons why it didn't catch on. It didn't quite fit anybody's model. No, no. I, I think one, by having spoken earlier of setting aside technology and in fact I referred in my first remarks to the fact that we did have a, a more advanced technology base than the French after the war um, and we've talked a lot about building the right vehicle for the market and so forth. I think we ought to also recognize that in some of these cases that we now bemoan the failure of our product, or the relative failure, the, the lack of full full success, is at least partly related to technical failure. Because 
the products got into difficulties in development and the costs escalated yeah. and the time scale got a lot longer and the products that might have been a decent goer at the original estimates yeah. of price was not in the end. And I think I remember when I first went to work at NGT, the, the rotodyne was very actively under study. And at that time, there was a prototype, there was lots of enthusiasm from the company, um, there was a lot of technical work going on, but as time moved on, it became clear that you you had to have more powerful engines, you know, to, to make it perform properly. And this produced more noise, and it was a big stretch in the Tyne engine, so you had to you had to pay for the development of that. Time was going on, so it came in later, its availability was later. And, and eventually, of course, the, the noise issue became more important because noise was growing all the time as a, as, a, as a problem. But the noise issue was exacerbated by the technical problems on developing the aircraft. And I think one of the factors that has been at play in the British industry has been technical optimism within the industry even when it was technically very capable, there was technical optimism around the place. And technical optimism was deployed more often in government-backed mm. projects than in non-government-backed projects. I do remember at one stage being involved in looking at the weights of engines which were quoted by manufacturers, and I won't go into detail on this, obviously, but I do remember when we were assessing them at NGT that those engines that were being sold into the civil markets, the open world markets, had weight estimates that were much more dependable than those that were not being sold into those sorts of markets. Um, and I think that's yeah. a, that, that's, there's a message there too. 